see, we're going to read the 47th Psalm today to the chief musician, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the ex- excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the shout, with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of God, the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So here we are, Heavenly Father. I thank you for delivering us from rain once again. Uh, Although it looks like we may get some while we're sitting out here, we do thank you for the chance to meet and to uh, praise your glorious name. And uh, Lord, I thank you for each person that's come out here and I ask you bless them in their drive back that they'll be safe when they leave here this afternoon. And uh, let us just take a moment and praise your glorious name for all the goodness that you display in our lives. We thank you above all for the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our rock, our hiding place, our refuge. He is our all in all. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for the cross that he willingly endured for each of us. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which came through his atoning sacrifice. And also, Lord, we thank you for your word, your holy Bible, which is so sure and so tender and such a a strong and powerful testimony to who you are and your workings in the uh, stream of mankind. We love you and we praise you. And we offer our songs and our praises to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.
there. And that's kind of where the direction the storms are coming from. So if you guys will kind of keep an eye behind me, if you see it's coming, then we can always bail out of here. But let me, uh, don't want anybody to get zapped by lightning. Now, I, I got to read something. Normally, I read another psalm before I get into uh, what I want to say. But I got to read something. We talked about this last night in Saturday school. And um, I, I, I watched Benjamin Netanyahu's speech just before coming here. It was done on Friday. I didn't see it, but I got to see it just, just within the past hour. And uh, I want to read something that we read in class last night. And I'm going to talk about it for just a minute for those of you who weren't there. It says, Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug, again, the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up. Um, after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek. Therefore they quarreled, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there, Esek and Sitna means uh, quarreling and then um, dispute. All right, so that's why he named these wells that. They quarreled over it. They disputed over it. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth meaning spaciousness. Um, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant, Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And uh, Isaac's servants dug a well there. Then Abraham came, uh, Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me? And you have sent me away from you. But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us. Uh, and let us make a covenant with you that you do will do us no harm since we have not touched you. And since we have done nothing to you, but good. And you have sent, uh, we have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made uh, them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass that same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called the place Sheba. Therefore, to this, uh, the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. Okay. Um, I just wanted to bring that up because Netanyahu is desperately seeking peace. The Jewish people are desperately seeking peace. The Bible later will say in uh, Jeremiah, they say peace, peace, but there is no peace. And that is what is going to happen. They are going to bargain away everything in order to obtain peace. And this is coming. And um, uh, I have a feeling that that which has been was will be again. And that which has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. That's from Ecclesiastes 1.9. They have found wells. They have found a life in the land and people keep taking it from them and taking it from them. And then they dig another well and somebody takes it from them. Finally, they have their own little well and they say, we have enough room. This land is ours and we can make it here. And then the people, sure enough, are going to come and they're going to do a covenant with them just as happened in the past. And this covenant is going to be at the expense of the Jewish people and they're going to rejoice over it. And I even said last night, I wouldn't be surprised if the day after they have this covenant signed, they're going to find something in some of the land they traded, a great well of oil or a great well of water or something like that. And what's going to happen? The people are going to say, you cheated us out of this. It's just one thing after another. 
So my heart is really heavy for the Jewish people today, the nation of Israel. And it just, it bothers me that the world is so heavily aligned against people that just simply want to live in peace. They want their own land and they have every right to it. So uh, today my prayer is going to be for the people of Israel. Before I get there, I, uh, if anybody has any other prayers they want to submit, just yell them out to me. But uh, I want to, again, thank the musicians that have come here. As always, it can't, can't really have a fun service without the musicians, so I thank them. And then next Sunday, the Lord willing, same time, same place. And I wanted to say this in the past, and I keep forgetting, is, you know, if that central over there off to the side of the bathrooms is not being used and there's ever rain, we can just go over there and meet over there. So don't ever feel like, oh, I can't come out, it's raining. Because as you see, it was pouring rain. Tom called 10, 15 minutes before arriving here, it's just pouring. Are you meeting? I said, it's nice and dry here. So... Um, but we can always move over there if necessary. And um, baptism, anybody wants to get baptized, lots of water here. So that's always available to anybody that wants to uh, follow the Lord and believers' baptism. And then, of course, we have something over here. If anybody wants to put anything in there to help out with the ministry, please do. N- no obligation there. And uh, I'm going to skip Psalm 98 today, which I was going to uh, read after this so we can get into the sermon in case it rains. Let me put this down. And before I do, I want to make a little presentation because obviously today we're speaking about the Feast of Trumpets. So I thought that I would go ahead and blow the trumpet for you to get us started and then we'll blow it again to get us finished today. But this is actually a trumpet from Israel. It's known as a shofar. Uh, This is not a ram's horn per se. A ram's horn is normally much smaller. I have one of those as well. This is from a Yemenese animal, but it is a shofar because it's an animal horn. And uh, you will hear one of these at the rapture if you're a saved believer in Jesus Christ. If not, then you're not going to hear anything, but you're going to be wondering where your saved believer friends went. Um, in addition to that, this was the shofar that was, not this one, but it was the instrument that was blown when uh, the people received the Ten Commandments. And there are other times in the Bible where the shofar is uh Uh, blown and uh, it's a very simple instrument to play it takes no skill at all it just simply takes a little bit of breath and i mean a very little breath to make this resonate but it's a beautiful sound there we go that's the shofar so Today is the Feast of Trumpets, and that's what we're going to be speaking about as the Feast of Trumpets. Really, it was no effort, so there's no need for applause there. Give the Lord the glory for making an animal that can give us something that can do that. I'll take this off because I'll have it all over the place. But uh, And people wanted this particular sermon taped because, uh, you know, it's, it, people want to hear about the Feasts of the Lord. So I have this on, and it's probably going to make noise and be no good at all for the, putting on YouTube. But I do have that anyway, just in case. Um, I'd like to do something a little different than normal. You're not going to expect this, but I would like to wish you all right now a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. And I will explain why as we go along. G.K. Chesterton said about the New Year's, the object of a New Year is not that we should have a new year. It is that we should have a new soul and a new nose, new feet and a new backbone, new eyes and new ears. Unless a particular man made New Year resolutions, he'd make no resolutions. Unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly do nothing effective. Unless a man starts on the strange assumption that he has never existed before, it is quite certain that he will never exist afterwards. Unless a man be born again, he shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So 
I'd like to greet you all with a Hebrew greeting, which is Lashana Tova Tikatevu, which means may you be inscribed for a good year. The feasts of the Lord are outlined in Leviticus chapter 23, and they're listed in the order that I am now going to give, although they're not in the order that we're going to present them in sermons. This is the order they're given in Leviticus 23. The first one is Hashabbat, or the Sabbath. This is an ongoing weekly festival of the Lord, and it goes week by week. They have a weekly Sabbath. After this come the spring feasts. The first one is known as Pesach, or the Passover. And then we have Hamatzot, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then after this comes Bikurim, or the Feast of first, first Fruits. Excuse me. And then finally, in the spring, we have Shavuot, or We know it as Pentecost. Those are spring feasts. And then at the end of the year, in the fall, we have three more feasts. The first is Rosh Hashanah, or as it's biblically known as Yom Teruah, the Day of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah meaning the head of the year. The next one is the most sacred day in the biblical year is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. I will be speaking on the Day of Atonement next week, and it is wonderfully beautiful how it was fulfilled in Christ. And Sukkot is the final feast of the year. It's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. So this year, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah is going to be this Wednesday starting at sundown. Actually in Israel is where it would start, but sundown wherever you are is the beginning of the feast. And that goes back to the first chapter of Genesis. Evening and morning was the first day. Evening and morning was the second day, etc., uh, the biblical days actually start in the evening, not in the morning or at 12, 12 midnight or whatever, as we do in other parts of the world. So just so you're aware of that, after Rosh Hashanah, which is next Wednesday, is Yom Kippur. That's on October 7th. And then on October 12th through 9th is the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. So in Israel right now, this week, we are coming up on the new year. And these are the feasts of the Lord. I want everybody to understand that because they are quite often incorrectly described as Jewish feasts. And that turns people off from them when, in fact, these are biblical feasts of the Lord. So keep that in mind. And they hold incredible significance for the Christian, not just Jewish people, but for the Christian. And yet most people, unless you like to follow these type of things, really have no idea why they are so important and how they actually point to the person and work of Jesus Christ all the way from the Old Testament up until the day he manifested himself to Israel and then he fulfilled these feasts. I'm going to give you two text verses today rather than one. The first one is from Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And the second verse today is from Galatians 4, 4 and 5, which says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. So may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Point number one today is the feasts of the Lord. Leviticus 23 opens with these following words. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. After stating this, it goes on to describe the eight feasts that I just gave you a a couple minutes ago. The question is, who is the Lord that is being referred to in this verse? Now, 
most people don't take the time to do this, but I would hope in the future you would, is anytime you get a new Bible, you would read the introductory section to that Bible. And in it, it will normally tell you why they chose certain translational approaches, the meaning of certain abbreviations, and they will also designate the titles of God in Scripture and how they are portrayed in the English language. Normally in the Old Testament, and that's what I'm going to be speaking about here, Bibles will take the divine name of God, which is Yahweh or Jehovah. They will take that and they will translate it as L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. So when you see all capitals, that's speaking the divine name, Jehovah, all right? After that, there is another designation for this same person, this member of the Trinity, which Jehovah, and the word is Adonai, all right? If you think of it this way, if I, rather than calling the President of the United States by his name, I would call him POTUS. Most of you have heard, President of the United States, POTUS, all right? That's a designation that means only the President of the United States and has no relevant meaning in any other way. Well, in the English Bibles, they will translate the word Adonai, which is speaking of God, but not his name. In other words, when I'm speaking to him, I would say Adonai. I would not say his name. That is normally translated capital L, small O-R-D, all right? And then there's one more Lord that you will see in the Old Testament. It's all small letters, and that is speaking of a human being. It may mean mister or master or something like that, and that is translated small L-O-R-D. That's very important you understand that as you're reading the Bible so that you know who is being talked about and why. Leviticus 23 calls these the feasts of the Lord, Moedi Yehovah using all capital letters. And if you understood what I just said without dozing off here, they're all capital meaning Jehovah. These are the feasts of Jehovah or Yahweh. And if you're here during the next three weeks or if at any time you do a study on these, you will begin to see a pattern in these feasts which identifies them in the New Testament as being the feasts of Jesus. They're a celebration of his life and his work. And when we are done with these particular groups of sermons, I think that you will see fulfilled in a wonderful way that which is the splendor of the Son of God. Absolutely, and no doubt about it, each one is unique, and each one points to some wonderful work that he has accomplished on our behalf. Leviticus 23 ends with these words, so Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. The Hebrew term for feast in this particular context is moed, and it means exactly as it's translated. It means a seasonal gathering of the people for a feast and a solemn remembrance of the deeds of the Lord. And throughout the chapter, along with this designation, are a few other words that they combine with it, such as a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, a sacred assembly. These type of words are used in conjunction with the word moed or feast. And I'm saying this as an important reason because people will take this word moed, which can mean something else, and they will insert it into the feast of the Lord and say, well, it can really mean this and this as well. And when in fact it is always translated as a feast in this particular context. And then there's one other word that is also used for the feasts of the Lord. It is the word Chag, and a little hard to say there, but anyway, it is used in a similar fashion to Moed, and it is always in the context of Leviticus 23, meaning a celebration, a feast, and that's it. So when somebody tries to insert a different meaning to that word into here, they're not handling God's word properly. It is a feast of the Lord, and that's the only reason why I told you these things is so that you're aware of it. 
So as you can see, these feasts were centered around Jehovah and were meant to direct the people's attention to what he had done or what he was doing or what he would do for the redeemed of the Lord. And while we are on the main topic of the feasts of the Lord, I want to give you a little bit more information from the book of Exodus. I'm going to note it now and it'll be explained as the feasts come about, but I want to read it to you here. It says three times a year, you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall keep, you shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. None of you shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you've sown in the field and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. All right. These are in conjunction with the Levitical 23 feasts, but they, that people gather actually in Jerusalem. At other times, they don't have to gather. But that's very important to understand. They were major gatherings of the men of Israel. And as you'll see, as you're reading both the Old Testament and the New Testament, many times it will say they were in Jerusalem for a feast of the Lord. And that's explaining to you why. And when you see Jesus in Jerusalem, it is almost always because of a feast of the Lord such as when he was 12 years old. Remember, the family came down to Jerusalem. Well, that was at a feast of the Lord. They took off. He stayed behind. They went looking for him. Three days later, they found him in the temple. He was there because of a feast gathering. And that's important for you to understand as you're reading the Bible. So I want you to understand this doctrinally as well as in a sermon context. That brings us to point number two today. The Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, also known as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. And it's going to get confusing at this point, I'll tie it all together at the end, but please understand it. It is a little confusing what God does in his word, and it's very hard to put it together all at one time. So bear with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, unlike the other Leviticus 23 feasts, this is all the information that we're given in there for this particular feast. And so we have to make a lot of deductions about its prophetic significance, which people often do. They jump ahead and they make deductions that are not correct. So we want to make sure that we're taking it in context as we do. And they will also, um, we also need to diligently research the entire Bible. And I mean this literally from Genesis all the way up into the New Testament. We need to research the entire Bible to understand what is being signified at the feast of Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah. And then we will see the immense, the immense glory of what is being prefigured in this beautiful celebration. Fortunately, there is more information about this particular feast in Numbers 29. It's a little long, but bear with me again. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For you, it is a day of blowing trumpets, as we just did. You shall offer a burn offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an epaw for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burn offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burn offering with its grain offering, and their drink offerings, according to the ordinance, as a sweet aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. Everything that I just read, whether you know it or not, 
prefigures and speaks about the work of Jesus Christ. The bull pictures Jesus Christ as our high priest, the significance of which is explained in Leviticus 16 and which will be talked about during the feast of Yom Kippur. The ram pictures Jesus as our sin offering. The symbolism is also explained in Leviticus 16. And the lamb pictures Jesus Christ as our substitute, such as when the people would put their hands on the Passover lamb, confess their sins over it, and then slaughter it. Okay? The flower pictures Jesus as our sinless bread of life. And the oil is the one, he being the one through whom we receive the Holy Spirit. All of the detail in that particular passage is they're prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ. And together, they are called at the end of that a sweet aroma to the Lord. And in the New Testament, this is what Paul calls Jesus. It says, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And this feast, the Feast of Yom Teruah, is the only feast that is specifically designated on the new moon, the first of the month. In Israel, they have a 30-day calendar, unlike we do. And so the first of the month is always the new moon. And that's important for you to understand because it is when the skies are the darkest in Israel. So keep that in mind. There is a reason for that, and the significance will come out in a couple minutes as we move on. Not only is it on the first month, but it is also on the first of the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month of the biblical calendar from the time of the Exodus onward, all right? Now, it's going to get a little confusing for a few minutes, but before this, Tishri was the first month of the year. And at the Exodus, God made a different month, the first month of the year, and Tishri became the seventh month of the year. More confusing, it is now the first month of the year again in Israel. So we're working with three different things here. So I want you to understand that. That is why this feast is known now as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. That is not a biblical designation. That is what it's known because the people of Israel celebrate it as the first of the year. Biblically, it is known as Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets. I want to take a minute here. Uh, Would you come up and explain to them what you do in Israel on this particular holiday? Would one of you like to do that? Tell us what you do on Rosh Hashanah. You give certain treats out to each other and you have a celebration, don't you? I, any of you, whoever. No, are we, are we celebrating? Come out, Yosef, come out. Come on up, Yosef. I just want I, I want them to understand what you currently do, whether it's biblical or not is irrelevant, but I thought it would be kind of nice for them to know what you currently do on this particular day in Israel. Well, the whole, like, just during this day, like uh, what Charlie did here, he, uh, you, you, you blow the trumpet, you know, to signify the, the new year, and... Uh, Usually, like the, the the whole country, it's uh, what they do is kind of like to sim- to symbolize the new year and a sweet year. They dip, you know, they have apples and they dip it in the honey. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else? Do you wish each other a certain greeting or? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the the new year. There you go. Lashana Tova Tikatevu, or some variant of that. Sometimes a little shorter. Yeah. Uh, Lashana Tova or whatever. But anyway, that's what they do. It's just like us having a New Year celebration, in other words. So to them, this is what they're doing in Israel. And they do blow the trumpets based on the Bible, Yom Teruah, but there are some things that are added in. And that's why I was hoping that they would be here to be able to explain that to you so you can see a little bit of the variation from the biblical account and what actually happens in Israel. And for those of you who don't know these two, they're actually from Israel. They're both uh, Jewish. And then we have uh, Rhoda here who is married to them. So we've, and so it's, it's always a blessing to me because what's that? 
it's, it's always a blessing to me because we have these people that understand not only the biblical context of these things, but they also understand the cultural context of these things. So there are times where she'll ask me a Bible question. Next thing you know, I'm asking her a, a particular question about Israel. So it's always, that's a real blessing. And I thank you for doing that. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I also didn't want to say anything in advance because I, I thought maybe you'd say no. So there you go. <laughs> So as I said earlier, Leviticus 23 points to and is prophetically fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And that means all of those celebrations. And that's why we do not have a Sabbath in the Christian church. We are not Sabbatarians like Seventh-day Adventists. It's because these are fulfilled in Jesus. And we can talk about that at some point in the future. If you're still here on uh, October 7th and then later on the Feast of Tabernacles, we'll talk about them. And if you're here at the time of next year when we come to the Passover, etc., we'll talk about those feasts as well. And at some point, I'll do a sermon on the Sabbath so you understand why things are the way they are. But there are people that make wrong interpretations, and it's particularly about Rosh Hashanah, but some of the other feasts as well. And I'll give you an example. One of the teaching states that because these are fall feasts, they will happen at the end of the prophetic calendar. And what I'm saying is that Jesus came and you have four spring feasts. And they say these four spring feasts were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We know the Passover was. We know that the resurrection, which is Bikarim, was, etc. These first four feasts. And they say, but the other three feasts have not yet been fulfilled. And that's going to happen when Christ returns at the end of the prophetic calendar. All right. And that would be the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of uh, Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles. The idea is there in particular that the Feast of Trumpets is blowing the trumpet and a trumpet is mentioned at the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And therefore, they say that that is a picture of the rapture. And that is not correct. That's the way I was originally taught. And that's what I believed. But that is an incorrect fulfillment of this particular feast. And we can go right to what Paul said in our text verse today as uh, where was it? All of these things were a shadow of the things to come but that the reality is found in Christ. So he is the fulfillment of all of these feasts. And we need to keep that in mind and not make incorrect interpretations because of something we want to happen. Having said that, I personally believe that the rapture will happen on a feast day. But if you look at the symbolism of all of the feast days, each and every one of them could be a candidate for the rapture. And my wife knows every time we have a feast day, I get excited. I've been doing this now for about eight years. I just get excited every time there's a feast day happening. Hey, here's why. I'll go through them real quickly. Passover is a picture of our redemption. We all know that. Well, if we have our final redemption, maybe the rapture will be on the Passover. And then we have first fruits, which is the picture of the resurrection. And why wouldn't we be resurrected? We got lots of dead Christians for the past 2,000 years. They're going to go up at the Feast of Bikarim. Or we have the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. And then the Bible says that before the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the world. Well, doesn't it make sense that the Holy Spirit would be taken out on the same day it was given? Picture of the rapture, okay? And then we have the three fall feasts. We have Yom Teruah. We have a trumpet blown. As I said, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Maybe the rapture is going to be on Wednesday, right? With the Feast of Trumpets. And then we have the Day of Atonement, Christ is our atoning sacrifice. And so maybe our final glorification when we become like him is the day of the rapture. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles where God dwells with man. Well, wouldn't that be a great time for the, for the uh, rapture to happen? 
and they blow a trumpet, believe it or not, on Yom Teruah, and they blow in on the Feast of Tabernacles. So any one of them could be a candidate, and I think God did that intentionally to keep me excited and not sleeping on the feast days, because everybody knows the rest of the year I sleep at 8.15. But whatever reason, I do believe that the rapture will occur on a feast day. And there are a couple other feast days that are not in Leviticus 23 that came later, and we'll talk about those at some point too, and one of them we'll bring up tonight. As we come to those feasts, we're going to talk about them. We're going to look at how they were fulfilled and see the, the splendor of how the Bible lays them out. But the one that we're going to talk about today is the one that is the most veiled in its fulfillment. And that's why people make errors on this. But when you see the pattern that is in there, and if you've been in my class, you know this already, how clear it is once you have the information in front of you. And that's why I say you've got to know the whole Bible to understand this particular feast. Getting back to Rosh Hashanah, though. There are three other times that this feast is mentioned in the Bible, and I'm going to just read the first one and tell you where the other two are because I don't want us to get rained out here. Here's the first one. Rosh Hashanah is mentioned in Genesis 8.13, and it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month. Now remember, Tishri was the first month of the year until the time of the Exodus. So please don't get confused when I say it's the seventh month in the Bible. After the Exodus, it is. So on the first month, on the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. That is the same day that we're talking about. And to understand this, as I said, make sure that you understand that Tishri was the first month of the Bible. So that occurred exactly 1,657 years after the creation of the world. And the world at that time was 596,520 days old to the very day. Wonderful. The next one comes in Ezra 3, 6, and I'll just read one sentence from it. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. And one other time it's mentioned in Nehemiah 8, when the pe people came together and they opened the book of the law and they read it to the people, and it says it was on the first day of the seventh month. I didn't mean to give you the short short on that and skip the verses, but it is getting a little dark. That brings us to point number three today, though. The word became flesh. As I said, the first month, the original first month was the month of Tishri. And again, in Israel, it is the first month of the year. However, after the Exodus, God chose another first month for the Israelites. And here's what it says. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This was the month that the Passover occurred. Exodus 13, verse 4, gives us the name of that month. It's the month of Abib. However, this gets more confusing. Esther 3, verse 7, changes the name. The reason why is because they were exiled up to Babylon and after that to Persia, and so they assumed the Aramaic name of the month. The name of the month went from Abib to Nisan. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast the poor, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. All right, so you have, it's the first month after the Exodus, it's called Abib, and then it becomes Nisan. And you have to know these things in order to understand what's being prefigured here. So when we're talking about Nisan and we're talking about Abib, we're talking about the Aramaic and the Hebrew of the same month. And not to confuse you more, but this is going to get that way for just a second, we're going to see a pattern develop from 1 Chronicles chapter 24. This tells us 
the names of the divisions of the Levites from all over Israel. They would come together, 24 different divisions, and they would go to Jerusalem on a rotating basis. Now, if there's 12 months in a year and there's 24 divisions of Levites, that means that each division is there for about two weeks, for 15 days, and then a new division comes in. Most people read the book of Chronicles and they just don't bother you know, getting into the details because it's name after name after name for chapter after chapter. But every one of them is very important. And I'm going to read you one little section of it and I'm going to explain it. And the scribe Shemaiah, the son of Nathaniel, one of the Levites, wrote them down before the king, the leaders, Zadok the priest, Ahimelech the son of Abiathar, and the heads of their father's houses of the priests and the Levites. One father's house was taken for Eleazar and one for Ithamar. Now, the first lot fell to Joiarib, the second to Yedaiah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Siorim, the fifth to Malkiah, the sixth to Miamin, the seventh to Hakaz, and the eighth to Abiah. The next thing we need to do is go to the New Testament. We go to the book of Luke, and we will see that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was a member of Abiah. That is an osprey over there, just in case you're wondering what that bird is. It's an osprey looking for dinner. So Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. He is a member of the eighth course, which is the course of Abia. And now he's going down to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. I'm going to read you the entire account from Luke. It's a little long, but it's the Christmas story. So please enjoy it. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abia. He was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of his priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He also will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, then he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, The Lord has thus dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. A little further down in the same chapter of Luke chapter 1, the 36th verse, we read that Mary was visited by Gabriel in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. It says here, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and now 
This is the sixth month for her who is called barren. And so from this point, we can very easily tell when Jesus was born. It is no secret. It's right there in black and white in the Bible. Abia was the eighth division. The first month of the year is the month of Nisan. Divisions one and two going, go during Nisan. That is the months of March and April. The next two, uh, the next two courses are courses three and four. That's the month of ER. That would be April, May. The next two courses are Shivan, which are courses five and six, and that is in the month of May and June. And finally, we have the seventh and then the eighth course of Levites, the course of Abia. He would have gone during the month of Tammuz, which is June-July time frame. It's right there in black and white, but as I said, you have to take the whole Bible in context to, to have this information. So we know that Zechariah would have been at the temple in June-July during the month of Tammuz. You add six months until Gabriel spoke to Mary. December, January, which is the month in Israel of Adar. And then you add nine months to that until Christ the Lord was born. It is the month of Tishri, this time frame right now. So based on the evidence in the Bible, we see that Christ was born, no doubt about it, between September and October, which corresponds with Tishri. And from here, we can determine that Jesus was born on the first of Tishri. And we can do it in a few ways. First, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is also the the rapture verse, okay, the one where they blow the trumpet. And there is a pattern, which is based on a reliable tradition, which states that Adam was created on the first of Tishri, the sixth day of creation. And it would follow reasonably that Jesus, being the second Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15, was born on the same day 4,000 years later. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, tell us Jesus I'm sorry. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man, meaning Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. And the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. All right, so he's making a comparison between the two. More interestingly, if you like this kind of thing, is that the very first word in the Bible is Bereshit. All right, Bereshit bara Elohim. It's the first sentence of the Bible in the beginning. Bereshit is spelled with these letters. Bet, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yod, Tav. Okay, and the Bible does this from time to time. It will take a word and make an anagram out of it or a word jumble if you do those in the newspaper. If you take those same letters and you turn them around, Aleph, Bet, Tav, Shin, Resh, Yod, you come up with the word Aleph, Bet, Tishri, or the first of Tishri. So there you have an evidence in the Bible itself that the first of Tishri is the date that we're looking at. And as I said earlier, this is the only feast which is designated specifically as occurring at the new moon. And what is the significance of this? It would be the day that the glory of the Lord would best be seen in the heavens. Here's what it says in Luke. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. That is why the Lord was born on the first of history. In 1 Kings chapter 34, we see that the shofar, this particular instrument, is blown at the coronation of a king. In that particular case, it was Solomon. And if you know who Edwin Teeley is, he's a noted uh, biblical scholar. He has determined that the regnal years or the years of the reign of a king in the land of Judah always begins 
on the first of Tishri, in the month of Tishri. So the patterns are simply way too rich, they're way too many, and they are way too well orchestrated to be anything other than divinely telling us that Jesus Christ was born on the first of Tishri. We can read in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. In this particular passage, it's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. The word for the shout of a king is Melech Teruah, and this is exactly what would have happened. Yom Teruah, the day of the trumpet. It would have been fulfilled as the heavenly host and the glory of the Lord was shining. And believe it or not, this is exactly what would have been occurring when the people of Israel, as he said, are out there just blowing their trumpets. Imagine these people have no idea that they are ushering in the great king of the universe while they're blowing these trumpets and just having a fun party. And the Lord of all creation is being born a couple miles south of there in Bethlehem. It is simply unbelievable. And if that doesn't excite you, you know, I picked the 47th Psalm today specifically for a reason. It's because it's known as one of the Psalms that's read every year, year after year on this particular day. I don't know if you heard me when I read this, but it says, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. In this particular verse, it says to sh- for the people to shout or ruah to God. And this is the root of the word teruah, which is used in Yom Teruah. And then it says a little bit later in this same particular verse that I read, he's the great king, the Lord Jesus. And down in the fifth verse of the same psalm, it says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. The shout is the teruah and the trumpet is the shofar. So this particular psalm that they've just been reading year after year for thousands of years points to the birth of Jesus Christ. All of the symbolism read year after year after year does this. Another psalm, another Rosh Hashanah psalm, with the trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. That's the 98th psalm. And then in the 81st psalm, it says, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. So all of this is prefiguring the work in the person of Jesus Christ being born into the stream of humanity. And that brings us to point number four today, waiting for a son. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of information about Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. All right. They were the parents of John the Baptist, and they've been waiting forever to have a child. But the Lord finally looked with favor on them, and he gave them a son. And I'm saying this to you because there may be somebody here that is waiting to have a child, or there may be somebody that knows somebody that's waiting to have a child. And the Lord will often work this way in people's lives, whether it's children or whether it's marriage or some other particular issue that he may withhold that from us for a while. And it's to teach us that we are reliant on him. And this same particular thing happened to many women in the Bible. Uh, For example, Sarah, who is the mother of uh, Isaac and Rebecca, the mother of Jacob and Rachel, the mother of Benjamin and Joseph and Manoah's wife, who's not named in the Bible, but she became the mother of Samson. And finally, we have Hannah, who is the Uh, mother of uh, Samuel, the last judge of Israel. All of these women are recorded as being, they had to wait for children until the time that the Lord determined. And as it says in the Bible, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The longest wait of all for a child was for God himself to send his son into the world 
4,000 years after he created it to redeem the people when the fullness of time had come. So the reason why I'm telling you this is so that whatever the issue is in your life, whether it's a child or whether it's finances or anything else, he wants us to be dependent on him first and not to claim things in his name, but to ask humbly for things. And when the right time has come, he will fulfill that in your life. Isaiah kind of looked at this and he analyzed it this way. He said, sing, O barren woman, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. And that brings us to point number five, short little point here, which is what is man? The 144th Psalm, David asks this particular question. He says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? And part of the reason that God is mindful of man goes right back to the first chapter of the Bible. It says here in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Because we are made in God's image, when we attack another human being, we are attacking his image bearer. All right. And in James chapter three, he says that if you curse another human being, you err in that respect. So if we err in simply cursing another human being, how much more if we kill one? I'd like you to think about that, because if we do, when we kill another person, the Bible says that our life is forfeit. It says it right in Genesis nine, whoever sheds man's blood, man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. Having said that, and having noted that God holds human life in absolutely the highest regard, I want to make a point today, and if anybody gets upset about this, the door is right over there, about abortion. This is very important in context of what we're speaking about today. In the book of Exodus, we see that murdering an unborn child carries the same penalty as murdering any other human being. Let me read it to you. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. So here's a question for each of you today. What is the reasons that we in a society say abortion is okay. Maybe because of rape, maybe because of incest, maybe we don't want to change dirty diapers. And you think of the reason and you tell me, how about if the child is going to be born out of wedlock or doesn't have a known father? And the question is, what if the child is the son of the king of the universe, but nobody knows who his father is? Are we going to abort him? That's the question. Concerning the account in Luke, I'm going to read a little bit more from that particular account of Jesus' time in the womb. It says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed... As soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb. This account occurred, as it says, in the sixth month of John the Baptist's time in the womb. And this means that Jesus was literally days, certainly less than a week old when he showed up. And yet this baby recognized him. 
to allow abortion in our society because of a certain trimester or because of any other reason, rape or incest or any other reason, is to take a completely unbiblical approach to this particular issue. The Bible is very clear on it when it says that he was days old in the womb and that the mother of John the Baptist was six months old in the womb. And yet that baby recognized another baby and it leapt for joy. There is no excuse ever for abortion. To attempt to justify abortion because of some wrong such as rape or incest, the only thing it does is it causes another sin to be committed. One sin can't cover another sin. It doesn't negate it and it also sets aside what God in his own providence has allowed. Yes, it was terrible that this woman got raped or whatever, but in his providence it was allowed and that is a human child in that womb. And so I'd like all of you to think these things through. It is completely unbiblical and it carries the death penalty to abort a child. There is forgiveness though and I want everybody to know that if any woman here has had an abortion, there is forgiveness for that. But if you don't ask for forgiveness, your life is forfeit because of that particular thing. I have one more thing I want to read on this point. I hope we have time before it rains. I'm going to read this. And if this upsets you, as I said, here's the door. It says the Democratic Party strongly and unequivocally supports Roe versus Wade and a woman's right to choose a safe and legal abortion, regardless of ability to pay. And we oppose any and all efforts to weaken or undermine that right. That is from the Democratic National Committee platform. I don't care if it's the tax collector in Sarasota or the president of the United States. If they are a Democrat party candidate, they have signed this platform. There is no such thing as an anti-abortion Democrat. There's no such thing. They have signed this. There is one of two things. They are either incompetent or they are liars because they've signed something that says this. So you vote for whoever you want. This is your choice as a human being. But this is what they are signing. And if you vote for somebody that is actively supporting abortion in this matter, then that blood resides on you as well. And that's a very important thing to consider when you cast a vote. I'm not here to intimidate anybody or to tell you what to do with it. I'm getting you to think about this particular issue. So I'm done with that issue for today. Maybe I'll bring it up again in the future. No doubt I will. Point number six today, the significance of Christmas. There's obviously one more question that needs to be answered if we're talking about Rosh Hashanah as Jesus' birth. What are we doing celebrating Jesus' birth on December 25th? You, isn't that the obvious question? We've been doing it for all these years. Why are we doing that? All right. Some people say that it's a Catholic attempt to bring in pagans into Christianity and they can bring in their celebrations, which occurred about the same time of the year, and they'd feel comfortable you know, being brought into Christianity with their pagan beliefs. Now, whether this is true or not is totally irrelevant to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with it. The significance of 25 December is far more rich and far more beautiful than pagans being brought into the fold of Jesus Christ. Here it is. I figured it out about two years ago, sitting there at my computer. A human baby is 270 days in the womb. That's the time of gestation for a child to be born from the time it's conceived. Well, if you go from Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishri, and backdated 270 days, what do you come to? You come to 25 December. Now, that'll be one day or two days different, depending on when Rosh Hashanah is, because our calendar no longer matches the biblical calendar. But it's 25 December. What we have been celebrating for the past 2,000 years is not Jesus' birth from the womb. It's his birth in the womb 
when he united with human flesh, as it says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And interestingly enough, this is even more wonderful, four times in the past 100 years, the Feast of Dedication has fallen on the same day as Christmas. This feast is mentioned for the first time anywhere outside of the apocryphal books of the Maccabees. It's mentioned in John 10, 22. Today, Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And Jesus cites how many times in the New Testament that he is the fulfillment of that feast. It says here in John 8, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again, in John, the first chapter, he says, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. So as incredible as it seems, Jesus Christ was most certainly conceived on the Festival of Lights, which is Hanukkah. And he was born on Yom Teruah when people were out there blowing that wonderful trumpet, praising God on the new moon when the glory of the Lord came up and shone to the people. All of this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So if you've never considered, I don't know if all of you have or not, if you've never considered the Christmas story before, why God sent his son into the world, it's because we are in darkness and God sent light into the world. Benjamin Netanyahu stood there at the United Nations just a couple minutes ago. He, it was from Friday, but here's what he said. He quoted Isaiah. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And he said it in Hebrew, and then he repeated it to the world in English, not even understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of that particular feast. And that is why God sent him in, to give us a path of light to be reconciled to God. God says that we have all sinned, every single one of us, we have sinned, and that he is infinitely glorious, and therefore we are infinitely separated from him. But Jesus Christ is the God-man. He was born of the Holy Spirit, born of Mary on Yom Teruah, praise God for that, and he can put his hand on God the Father, infinite away from us, and he can put a, his hand on us, finite and sin-filled, and he can say, I will be the bridge if you will simply hand me your sins. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, and he asks us to do one thing. He says, just call on me in faith. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So if you've never done that today, if you've never just simply made those simple words of calling on Jesus, understanding that he is the light to lead you to God, he is the path, he is the rock, he is the hiding place and the safe refuge and every other good thing that comes from God, then do it today. And let's say a prayer about that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the true light, which is the person of Jesus Christ he is our salvation. He is our savior. He is the fulfillment of the feast of Rosh Hashanah in a way that is far better than we could ever imagine. It's there in your word. It's so wonderful to see. And yes, we do hope for the rapture. Those of us who have called on Jesus, we hope that it'll be today. Then we're going to blow the trumpet here in a, a minute asking you to respond and bring us. But there are people in this world that have not called on Jesus. And so our prayer today is that you would show yourself to them show yourself holy and have them call on you before that day because after that day happens it's going to be too late and we're going to be stuck here on earth 
in a time of great tribulation, death and woe. And so I would ask that anybody that's never called on you will do that today. Just simply call in the name of Jesus. We love you. We praise you. All hail the great King, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.